decolonial Judaism is a Judaism that recognizes that we have way too many stories have wandered way too long to be like, do you have proof or, you know, your kalacha looks like this, your practice looks like this, or this is too messy, too wide, too evolving. Welcome to the world that we live in. <laughs> We're dreaming the world to come. Hi, I'm Nomi. I'm Rebecca. And this is Dreaming the World to to Come. come. This is Dreaming the World to Come, a project where we reimagine time and the ways we relate to it, aligning with ancestral Jewish traditions and honoring the diverse voices and experiences of the diaspora, past, present, and future and the magnificent humans who've been dreaming of a just world for millennia. Nomi and I are both queer, non-binary, white, disabled Jews, and Hebrew priestesses, or priestixes. We live in the Pacific Northwest on Squaxin land, also known as the Stachas Village, known colonially as Olympia, Washington. In addition to this podcast, we create a planner that combines Hebrew, Gregorian, and moon calendars. This year's is called Indwelling Dreams of Olam Haba. The podcast comes out at the beginning of each Hebrew month and includes our takes on that month and an interview with one of the contributors from the planner. And you don't need the planner to enjoy the podcast, as we always say, but you can buy the planner at www.dreamingtheworldtocome.com. And it's on a magnificent sale. More than mega. More than mega. $18 for the planner. Originally $45. So buy one for yourself. Buy one for your friend. Buy one for your neighbor. Buy one for your dog. Buy one for your cat. Buy one for each of your houseplants. (laughs) Buy one for... Each of your outdoor plants. <laughs> Build an entire house out of them. We do have a lot of them. So. <laughs> and you are the smarty, smarty pants who waited until after Hanukkah. After Hanukkah. <laughs> to purchase your planner. So you get it at like the most reduced rate. Four months into the year, you know? Yeah. Still a lot of value. We also have a Patreon and on our Patreon, you can listen to the full unabridged version of the interview with the contributor for the month. And these interviews are very juicy. The full interviews, you hear a lot more than gets edited for the podcast. And we really want to grow our Patreon. If you like this podcast, if you've listened to it, Even becoming a member for a dollar a month will greatly support the production, the editing, the ASL interpretation, and keep it going with vibrancy. So paying the contributors. Yeah, paying the contributors. Mm -hmm. It's it's really important part of this whole situation. 
Yeah. And if you're interested in listening to the whole interview, if you're a person of color or a Jewish person of color and you want to listen, you can send us an email at elementalactivation at gmail.com. You don't have to become a Patreon. We just want to send it your way. All right. Happy Rosh Chodesh Tevet. Happy new moon of Tevet, the little tiny sliver of the moon starting to come out mid-Hanukkah. Yeah. What are your associations with this time of year and Tevet, Nomi? So for Kislev, we spent most of the month kind of heading toward the solstice or the tekufa, the turning point. So we're like immersing into the darkness. Mm-hmm. And now in Tevet, we are just in the deep dark and there's a lot of pelvic consciousness in it and really like rooting down into kind of like the bottom of the ocean deep under the earth Mm -hmm. um, and really seeing like what wisdom lives there so we're continuing with that kind of prophetic inward spiraling energy of Mm -hmm. Kislev in this dark time like really using the time to digest and process and let anything fall away that needs to be let go of and die. And I really loved something that Yah says in our interview about, this is not about preparing for the next thing, actually. It's just Mm. about being here, being present in in this depth. Yeah, the being, the... And Rebecca talks about that in her piece in the planner this month about Moses's encounter with God and this moment of getting this really clear message. I am that I am just the I amness being our divinity, being our spiritual strength of we don't have to do anything. We don't have to strive towards anything that we are i am <laughs> yeah i want to just give folks a little orientation because we mentioned both yah and rebecca so the person who wrote the piece for tevet in this year's planner is rebecca stromberg who is an incredible scholar and it's a beautiful piece and she wasn't available to be interviewed this month and so we called in one of our priestess comrade siblings, Kohenet Yah. And so that's who's interviewed in this episode. So thank you to both Rebecca and Yah for being our collaborators and teachers for this month. We're happy to be able to share both of their work. Yeah. So returning to what you were sharing about just allowing ourselves to just be in this time. And I think, you know, it's such an interesting thing that capitalism does to us because it is this time of rest and we get all this time off, but then capitalism insists that then it become this like massive consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I like giving presents. I like receiving presents. And also just that curling in to be with family is a really sweet thing to be with the people who we choose to spend time with and get a little bit, you know, not everyone gets this, but some people get a break <laughs> um, mm-hmm. from 
obligations and that can be really nourishing and a good reset. As this time of the- year can also bring up a lot of hard feelings for people too. I know that I always have every year pretty much always have stuff come up around Christmas being everywhere. Oh and, yeah. Um, and also I love Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah, mm-hmm. everyone. Happy Hanukkah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go back to your comment about this being a hard time of the year. And when we really get deep into ourselves in our pelvic truths <laughs> in the cold, dark times, there is grief. There's, you know, adjustments that we need to make in ourselves. There's disappointment. There's a fear of not being able to do what we need to do or receive what we need to receive. And I think that also in contrast with the expectation for some kind of perfection or like this movie image of what we're supposed to be experiencing during this time can be really difficult. And I just want to say to anyone who's listening, who might be struggling, we're here with you in this deep dark and it is hard and you are not alone. And Everyone in the Northern Hemisphere at this time has this pull and it means you're in touch with yourself and we don't have to pretend to be otherwise. Yeah. And the depth and the grief that can emerge in the dark is a lot of the medicine that we need to heal. Mm-hmm. We chose to associate cinnamon with this month of Tibet because when cinnamon's harvested, the bark of cinnamon is harvested from the tree, it contracts inward, it spirals inward. And this inward spiraling is a reminder to us to embrace that inner journey that we can go on this time of year. Um, There's a really beautiful story from the Babylonian Talmud that I'll just read it out loud here. The logs of Jerusalem used for fuel were from the cinnamon tree. And when they would ignite Mm -hmm. them, their fragrance would waft through all of Eretz Yisrael. And since Jerusalem was destroyed, these fragrant logs were buried, and only a sliver the size of a grain of barley remains, and it is located in the treasury of Tsimtsimai, the queen. I love this short little excerpt. We don't know who Queen Simsimai yeah, is. Yeah, who's Simsimai the queen? It's so mysterious. So but she mysterious. has this treasury of of cinnamon. Um, just I always a small, thought tiny... she had like a treasury, like so much cinnamon. But I didn't know it was just a tiny, less than a grain of sand. Yeah, it really elicits this... Like just one tiny grain, one mm-hmm. tiny piece is all we need to connect mm. in with this feeling of mystery, mm. receiving the healing that mm. we need, you know, th- which is so counter to capitalism. So this is a story mm. for some healing in this way, but we just need a little, like and you, when you think about life, 
we do a lot of kind of mundane things. And then there are these moments every once in a while that are really acute. Seeing someone we haven't seen in a long time or reconciling after something hard with a friend or family member or celebrating a simcha, a joy, mm-hmm. you know, and they're just such small moments, but they keep us going for mm-hmm. so long and they mm-hmm. bring meaning to our life. And the story of the cinnamon and the treasury of Simsimai, the queen, kind of echoes a Kabbalistic story from the beginning of time, Simsum, it's called. Mm-hmm. We see the relationship with the name of Simsimai, the queen. And it's this concept that in the beginning of time, there was a contracting mm-hmm. that the light of God needed to contract in order to make space for existence to emerge, which is very aligned with the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. And so again, we see this in this tiny little grain, this tiny little speck, how Mm -hmm. all of life can emerge. The whole world. The whole world. Tiny space. Yeah. Yeah. So sweet too, because cinnamon is such a is so associated with winter, you know, and it's so warming and it's like so good for us in so many ways too. Mm -hmm. I love this association. I was just thinking about that yesterday of, yeah, and we spice everything this time of year with cinnamon. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Sweet. Literally. So there's a story that is associated with Hanukkah. Mostly, I think it was during like medieval times that people would talk about and highlight Judith, otherwise known as Yehudit, during Hanukkah. And you would find her like on menorahs and stuff in the medieval times. And so Judith was someone who lived before the Maccabees during the second temple period. So she lived in a town called Bethulia in Judea, and they were under siege by the Babylonian army, which was under Nebuchadnezzar, who we might have heard his name before. So basically, so there's a general named Holofernes, Holofernes, Holofernes. Um, he had like cut off all access to water, surrounded the town, like the people were going to starve and die. Like it was war. And so she had this plan that she executed with her handmaid at her side. They left in the night. She took, um, cheese and wine and infiltrated his camp. I mean, basically like, why do two women get to go into a like military camp? This is... (laughs) sex work. They are using their beauty, feminine wiles, and food and wine (laughs) to be like, hey, we want to party with the general. Totally. So they go in, they feed him salty cheese that makes him very thirsty. They drink a lot of wine. They party together. He passes out and she cuts his head off. (laughs) I'm sure it took two of them. That is a hard thing to do. Yeah. Physically. <laughs> Physically, like that is Difficult. a very demanding thing. And they have to do it quick enough to get the fuck out of there. Go, Judith. 
Go Judith. I mean, this is a hardcore story. It's also associated with the Festival of Daughters, Chag mm-hmm. Habanot, which mm-hmm. is like a North African Jewish festival mm-hmm. that happens on the seventh night. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I think she is an inspiration around like, what do you do <laughs> when mm-hmm. things are as bad as they can possibly be? What resources do you have available? I also just wonder, it's like, how often have sex workers been the ones to like really do the most hardcore shit <laughs> in in war? Mm-hmm. All untold stories. I'm so appreciative that her story has been preserved and shared. Like, thank you, Judith, warrior ancestor. <laughs> Thank you, Judith, warrior, sex worker, ancestor. So may we blaze with the fire that comes from within and that is amplified by our experience of immersion in the dark. I mean, blessing everyone with softness and courage to be with the quiet and the dark and to be with your own beingness amen amen hello we are so excited to have you here kohenet ya Thank you for being willing to step in on kind of short notice. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Kohenet Ya was a contributor for the 5782 planner and wrote mm-hmm. about Shvat, but none of our Tevet contributors were able to make it this month. Rebecca Stromberg is the one who wrote about mm-hmm. Tevet in this year's planner. It's a wonderful piece. So um, I'm excited for people to read that. But when we thought of like, well, who else would we want to call in then if we're just like <laughs> opening the doors wide, you were the person that came to us. So yeah. we're so grateful that you're available and willing so to be with us. Thank you. Yeah. Glad to be here. Excited. So I'm going to read your bio. Kohenet Mishakaret Ama, one who liberates her people, a.k.a. Ya. She, her, is from Brooklyn, New York, by way of Puerto Rico. She brings 25 plus years of experience supporting people at the crossroads of transformation. She creates decolonial frameworks through multidimensional rituals and teachings. Her prophetic practice integrates divination, energy work, mixed media poetry, and herbal medicine. She is a Jewish priestess initiated through the Kohenet Hebrew Priestess Institute. And she has been certified in strategies for trauma awareness and resilience by the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding. Welcome, Ya. Thank you. Hi, <laughs> Ya. Hey. <laughs> I always love talking to you, and you always bring this like really cosmic, divine <laughs> energy to every conversation I've probably ever had with you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and we are in the month of Tibet, or we will be when this podcast comes out. And it's the month that 
Hanukkah, half of Hanukkah is in Kislev, and then the second half of Hanukkah is in Tevet. So we're in the dark time. And I wonder if there's any kind of Tevet teachings you'd like to share. Mm, I love that. I think at least here in Turtle Island with the change of seasons and how dark things get. And to me, there's a difference between an entire void like darkness and darkness that still has like a glimmer of light. And for me, these seasons hold a lot of that mysterious place of unknowing, Mm -hmm. uh, which it's so gestational depending where you're at in your own process and in your own cycle. And I feel like this is the type of energy, especially with all the things that are going on, I think, uh, contextually, where the invitation is to step into a type of rest that actually is not trying to anticipate future or sit with Mm -hmm. past, but this place of presence that is not, at least for me, not ever the most comfortable place because I can't know what I want to (laughs) know. I have to be in a different type of listening and experiencing for me that moves like this, because I feel like there's some things that you're revisiting and then visiting for the first time. And, and there's this pulling that happens that, you know, separates in some ways the ongoing noise of our realities. And it pulls you into this simmering place. And that's what I feel like the invitation is in this season with all that's going on, especially in the world. It's like, mm. oh, wait, let's let's just be. And what does that look like just for a minute? Yeah, I, I for people who are listening, you were making a spiral shape with your hands <laughs> when you were talking about this time. And it really uh, connects with the plant we've associated with Tevet, which is cinnamon. And mm. um, the, the way that the bark makes a spiral. Yeah. Yeah. We were also talking before we started recording a little bit about Judith and wonder if you want to say anything about that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm about to tell a showdown. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, wait, let me take off my sweater. Hold on. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Story of Yehudit. So there's this threat of of war, the threat of being taken out. And this woman (laughs) with her handmaiden decides to infiltrate the army's setup, goes into the captain's secret tent, (laughs) which which I love, goes into the captain's secret tent, gives gives the homeboy cheese and wine, salty cheese and some (laughs) wine, gets him drunk, (laughs) drunk enough to be like laid out. That's what happens when it's too much. Right. And laid out and cut his head off. (laughs) Cut his head. (laughs) That's it. That's it. Right. Cut his head and the the harm averted because she did what others wouldn't do or have the courage to do. Use the wisdom, use discernment. And the thing was averted. But what makes this so beautiful and so powerful is the amount of courage that it actually took to be strategic about how she would make her way into that space, her way into conversation. You know, apparently she was very beautiful and graceful. So that was attractive. That's how she got in the tent, y'all. 
It may not sound right, but that's how she got in, right? But that's also strategy. She got in and was able, you know, that doesn't happen quickly, feeding him salty cheese and why until he got to that place where he was inebriated enough to be vulnerable. And then came the the cut. And I think the beauty of Yehudit is also taking the witness of her handmaiden with her. And, and again, the courage it takes to be that handmaiden. <laughs> Where are we going? What are we doing? Wait a minute, right? Like, But you see that there's this companionship and there's community in the idea that we don't face it alone. Mm. Yeah. Right? And that when we're showing up, some of us may be witness in the moment of the person who may be taking that type of stand or doing the action that's necessary for equity, justice, safety, and life. And when those things are in the play, the risk is really high, but also the impact much more deep. Mm-hmm. I come from a lineage of women type warriors and her energy reminds me a lot of my mom. And it's this idea that when things are happening, you didn't have to ask my mom to do the thing, to notice the thing. Like my mom would be like, notice the thing and get to the work of doing the thing. Mm -hmm. And when I sit with the story of what does it mean when there is either the potential or the threat of harm or chaos, what do we do in, in those moments? And I think that watching someone rise up in their agency and say, this is not what's going to happen. What does it look like to respond with swiftness rather than the waiting to be told or the waiting to be encouraged to rise up and do what is just and what is necessary, which sometimes those two things don't look as pretty as we like it, Mm -hmm. right? But it is a necessary thing. What does it look like to find our courage within? She took action in such a quick way, did the thing, right? And it averted the wave of consequence or ramifications mm-hmm. that that could have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it becomes a very like personal invitation. Just we don't stand by, especially when we know there's a threat. You don't just sit there and <laughs> think and write down, should we, but if I, is that my lane? Is it not? No, you know, the analysis of being able to understand that there's bigger things at stake. And to me, that type of courage is, uh, it's a thing of beauty and often very challenging. And I do a lot of anti-racism work. And one of the things that I often find in conversations with folks that are racialized as white is that they're like, I don't know what to say. I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. And I'm like, when it's a moment that you know something went down that should not be happening and you felt it in your gut, you can simply say, I don't have words for this, but something about this is out of line. It is not, but fill in the blank. I was like, whatever words you actually can, your knees are going to shake. You're going to get sweaty. It's going to, you know, you're going to feel all the things, but silence is not okay. And there's a real trust for the body in that, you know, in like yes. I, something doesn't feel right. I don't know mentally how to explain that, but I'm feeling it. And I feel like that's one of the gifts coming out of Kislev into Tibet is like we have this introspection time and there's like the artwork associated with this month. We have mm-hmm. like a pelvis that's in the ground 
and just that pelvic consciousness mm-hmm. of being able to really rest there and then make decisions from that place of survival and like that prophetic nature of those kinds yeah. of decisions too. I would like to hear, you know, you talked about your mom a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm really interested in your upbringing and whether or what your relationship to Judaism was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so one of the ways I tend to explain the nuance of my identity is that I didn't grow up Jewish. Mm. We, <laughs> in a strange universe of ways, very close to Jews, but for my family and like my mom, who was the driver of spirituality and faith practice in my home. For my mom, Judaism was a white experience Mm. and there was no space for people of color in Judaism. Mm. Fascinatingly enough, my mom was like deeply rooted in Torah and loved Torah. I mean, Mm. when when I say that, I don't mean just from the place of like loved studying Torah, but literally loved Hashem with all her heart, her soul, and her might. And it was, it was what she anchored herself in and what she turned to. As I got older, things began unpacking. And I began asking more questions and being more curious, not only about Judaism, but also our genealogy, which in my family is really challenging. Mm-hmm. I'm a first-generation uh, Boricua, which I would be considered New Yorican, is the specific nuance in New York, right? Um, and so we didn't have enough tracking of our history because of assimilation. So my grandfather came from Spain, my great-grandfather, and my great-grandmother was indigenous to Puerto Rico. And so everything else behind that moment when he came and married and created family, everything else was just kind of neutralized. And it's really challenging to get birth certificates and things like that on the island because they didn't document in the same way. And so it took up first my own like the cognitive dissonance of recognizing that there was this practice that I grew up in that didn't make sense to me in so many ways. And I was so disruptive in the environment that they would say, you're just like your mother. (laughs) I'd be like, that's a compliment. Thank you. (laughs) I appreciate that. And that kind of led to the next thing that led to the next thing that brought me to the place of beginning to ask questions about my family and our legacy. And I started doing some digging. It was probably, my kids were really young when I got to the place where I had enough information to understand. um, And it was incredibly frustrating to understand that I won't have everything that I need, Mm -hmm. but just enough to be able to say, okay, (laughs) There's this lineage thing moving through me and I don't have words for it, but this is what it feels like. This is what it looks like. And this is what home looks like. Mm-hmm. And then I just, as I do when I, when I get to the place of realizing, okay, this complex story of our family's history is not clear cut, but there's these traces. And I don't know why I feel more than anyone the compulsion to like Shabbat was calling me and all these things were calling me and all these little ways and little things that I was doing that we couldn't GPS anywhere, right? We couldn't mm. locate in the family. Um, and then shivers. I, yeah, it, it, it's, yeah. Which is some of my work is really committed to the conversation around the cost of assimilation mm-hmm. generationally. 
and that for some folks, there may be this, you know, a, a much more preserved legacy, but for others, there isn't. Because when we had to run and go, you ran and you ran away. That's I mean, you're surviving. And I had to make peace with the fact that I wasn't going to have all the proof and the evidence, but that that's not what creates legitimacy. And that legitimacy is not the question here. Yeah. And so I, I had, you know, I had those moments of toil and then I was like, all right, we're going to stop. We're not going to do this because no one can speak for me or for my family, what it means to embody something that's moving through. And so when I made the shift, then little by little, my family was like, oh, wait. And, uh, and so my process of the teshuva in that way for my lineage came through me. Mm-hmm. And my beginning in Judaism, in the practice of Judaism, actually started very, very orthodox and very like, wow. you know, I was Shomer Shabbat. And I mean, the wave of the practice came in and the movement. And then little by little, I was like, oh, oh, wait, oh, wait, mm-hmm. oh, wait. I'm really committed to social justice. And we, oh, wait, we're not doing that. I'm not doing that again, right? And so little by little, right, I, things practice became in their place. And and that's kind of the arc of the story because the journey has been so full and so long. My favorite passage in the Torah is Lech Lecha. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those of like recognizing that I will, because identity is such a thing in my like immediate culture, like Puerto Rican. And so once I fully owned the fullness of my identity, I found a home that no one can take from me, Mm. right? A belonging that transcends a human politic around identity. Mm -hmm. And so I started my practice at home because for me, if it's not me and it's not part of me, it made no sense to any, any religion or any belief system, right? So we started at home. When I decided to explore going to a synagogue, I went to a reform synagogue. We only have three types of synagogues here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And I met with the rabbi, awesome dude from New York. And we talked and I said, just, I just need you to know, we need to make this clear now. I'm not asking if you or your congregation think I'm Jewish. I was like, we're not having that conversation. The conversation we are going to have is, what's the predominant ethnic identity of your congregation? <laughs> like, Cause I don't need to be in another, you know, like predominantly white space. I was like, I need to, I need some rest. It can't be mm-hmm. in my spiritual world. Um, and he was just so gracious. Like, okay. <laughs> and so for me, I have a lot of passion around the conversation around like Jews of choice. Like I'm like, okay, we family and no one actually wants to choose another marginalized identity. No. Right. You know? It's like, like, oh, please, can I experience right. anti-Semitism? Right. Like, I don't have anything to do. So, you know, so much for me was like, no, no. see, my family was there at the same mountain that your family was at mm-hmm. with the complexity, right? With the complexity of knowing that we all came from somewhere mm-hmm. that wasn't exactly there. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, mm-hmm. we're not going to do that. And I'm not going to do that. And so I love your modeling of like really clear, firm boundaries with spiritual authorities. I feel like that's so intimidating to so many people. And so I'm so glad you're telling this story. I feel like it's really, yeah, 
we were talking about that with Hadar too, of like, there's all different ways to be a spiritual leader. And part of assimilation is putting all of this importance on rabbis. Mm -hmm. Like they're the end all be all. And that, I mean, all three of us are really involved in work around, and this now is becoming a theme in all of our conversations is that, we are all our own spiritual authorities. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's well, so Judith, Yehudi. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And I think that, and this is where a lot of the passion of my like decolonial liberation comes in, decolonizing Judaism comes in, decolonizing the way we're imagining, because I think that what tends to happen is when we have deep wounds around identity and around belonging and around being wanted, it also means that it's vulnerable to a lot of manipulation and a lot of pressing or shaping. And I think that to me, when we start looking at our own indigeneity in terms of like being peoples from different lands that have had to move and shift and move and shift and move and shift, I feel like we would be the last people to try to be exacting about legitimacy exacting about the complexities of identity when we've been surviving for so long when i teach one of the primary metrics of my work is like is it actually supporting people in their agency because at the end of the day if you can't find that within yourself you'll be looking for it everywhere else waiting for someone to tell you what you must accept about yourself I'm going to show up here as someone not in wanting, but already belonging and that the conditions of my belonging are not based on somebody else's nod, right? Mm-hmm. I know I, I did the battle with that thing mm-hmm. and I know that I belong and my belonging is present in my body and that allows me to move with agency and in a way that I can discern whether what somebody's saying to me makes sense and I want to integrate it. A decolonial Judaism is a Judaism that recognizes that we have way too many stories, have wandered way too long to be like, well, do you have proof or, you know, your kalacha looks like this, your practice looks like this, or this is too messy, too wide, too evolving. Welcome to the world that we live in. (laughs) With that, yeah, I'd really love to hear one vision that you have of the world to come. Hmm. One of the visions that I have of the world to come is one in which our body is not left out of the conversation and where we are no longer striving to be more, but that we are enough in who we are and where we're at. And so that would be one of the many visions that I'm holding for the world that we're creating and is being birthed through many travails. I'm going to cry. Amen. Yeah. Holy, holy. Amen. Amen. Yeah, you are such a channel of wisdom and vision. Mm -hmm. And I see you on the mountain with Moses. (laughs) And (laughs) may your voice continue to be heard Mm -hmm. by all who will benefit and receive the healing and blessings to you on all of your work. 
Thank you for the honor of being here and talking with y'all. I love it. Brings me so much joy. Honored and here. I am here. I am here. Dreaming alive, Cinnamon meditation for the month of Tibet. Take a deep breath in. Bring to mind the smell of cinnamon. Perhaps this time of year you have memories of foods or drinks with cinnamon. Imagine cinnamon stick in your hand, the curly bark curling in on itself, the sweet smell, asking your senses to enliven. Like the cinnamon bark, when you go inside, curl in on yourself, what sweetness, what spice is enlivened? Feel yourself curl. Go into the darkness of your organs, the center of your body. Feel the external world curl in, become internal. In this dark space, what do you value? What quiet and darkness is meaningful to you? How does curling in, going inward, support you in bringing flavor to your life, sweetness to your life. Take some more breaths in and out, savoring this internal moment. See how small you can feel how tiny you can become. And in that small, tiny space, can you feel the essence of your purpose? potentiality, 
of your life, the potential of life. Take a few more breaths, savor this feeling. And when you're ready, bring yourself back, unfurl. Still keeping that small grain of purpose inside. And now is the time where we highlight projects and things going on in the world that are lighting our way towards calling in the world we want to live in. So this way to Alam Haba. This month, we want to honor Shotzi Weisberger and really lift up her legacy she was a queer activist, a nurse, and death educator, an abolitionist, an anti-Zionist Jew. She died at the age of 92 on December 1st, 2022. And she's someone who used her age as part of her strategy for how to call attention to the things that she cared about. And she gathered a lot of young Jewish queer anti-Zionists around her and really help support us in having an intergenerational movement. You've probably, people have seen like images of her, either photos or paintings of her holding signs. There's one picture of her with a sign that says, I've been alive longer than Israel has existed. Judaism outside of Zionism is possible. Yes. Which is really powerful because the state of Israel has only been around for like 75 years, 74 years. Mm-hmm. And Judaism has been a culture and spirituality for thousands of years. So it's just mm-hmm. one small part of our history that we're trying yeah. to heal from and change. Yeah. She was known, kind of became affectionately known in the last handful of years of her life as the people's Bubby. Bubby is the name for grandmother in Yiddish. I'm really inspired by her abolitionist politics in particular. But I found this quote of hers that says, the only way all people will ever be able to live and die as they wish is if we pursue abolition, which is really powerful that we can't really die in peace and in freedom until all people are free. And I'm guessing... She's talking about abolition of prisons and police. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I saw yeah. a picture of her with a mug that says, fuck the police. <laughs> I'm so grateful to see her example and have an image of like who I hope to be when I'm in my nineties. And I, I know we shared an image of her that, like where she said, basically, like, I'm going to fight with you until I die. And then I'm going to keep fighting for you and with you for a free Palestine. 
and just that she put so much energy and effort into visioning her death and visioning how her legacy would impact those who she left behind and what kind of future she wanted to be a part of creating. She did all of this work around death work, and it's such a huge teaching to let people watch you die and to educate people through your dying process because, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of us grew up with this fear of death, of not talking about death very much. And I feel like Shotzi really gave us this gift of feeling her life vibrancy after mm -hmm. her passing and the way that we are like mycelium, that we mm -hmm. grow together at all mm -hmm. stages of existence. I mean, I never met Shotzi, but I got so happy whenever I saw pictures of her. I mean, mm -hmm. and it was all through Jewish Voice for Peace mm -hmm. and the way she wrapped herself up in that movement and gave us so much joy. Like, how awesome would it have been to have an anti-Zionist Bubby? I know, not even having met her, but just seeing pictures, I'm like, yeah. oh, she's my Bubby. Like, yeah. I feel like she was offering herself in that way for so many people. So just a couple announcements before we wrap up. Um, want to put another plug in for our amazing Patreon. Ooh. We have about, I think, 22 Patreon supporters now. Yeah, and thank you. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast and supporting our work and the work of the contributors who we interview, the folks that support us with editing, the ASL interpreters. And as a part of your patronage, is that a way you say it? <laughs> <laughs> we offer the full interview every month with the contributor and then occasional other odds and ends. For example, Isaac Afori Solomon, who was our second guest for the Cheshwan episode, he created this amazing, beautiful Jewish spiritual Spotify playlist. Mm -hmm. And so he shared it with us and said that we could pass it on to folks. And so it is on our Patreon. Also, we shared it for Hanukkah. So thank you so much to Yishak. And again, if there are folks who want access to this and can't afford to or don't want to become Patreon, Patreon subscribers, you can also reach out to us, especially Jews of color. Um, we don't want to be gatekeeping things. We we want to share it. So, um, but we also want your support, and yeah. you can give anywhere from one dollar a month to one million dollars a month. Um, we don't have any of that level of supporters yet, but we welcome you, <laughs> millionaires who want to support us. <laughs> <laughs> We're good with that. And obviously we would redistribute a lot of that <laughs> money if yeah. you were to give us that. <laughs> Contact yes. us separately because don't give it through Patreon because they take like 11%. <laughs> oh yeah, but we'll give you a free Patreon membership if you give us $1 million a month. No problem. Yeah, yeah that's not going to be an issue. We'll also no, start really a foundation about what and... we're going to do with this million dollars a month that we're about to get. This is exciting. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we also have a big sale going on right now. <laughs> a huge sale. It's like 
I mean, this is mega, mega sale. There are torches burning. There's confetti everywhere. Really big balloons. in the temple. That's right. (laughs) Thieves in the temple, everything. This is the biggest party of a sale you've ever experienced. You thought last month was good? You want to come on down. (laughs) Come on, get down and dirty with the dreaming the world to come. Huge Hanukkah sale. Actually, it's the post Hanukkah sale. Okay, after Hanukkah sale. This is like really big sale, guys. It's huge. It was 45. It's now 18. 18 dollars. Giving you life. Get like a few of them. Oh, yeah. We talked about this earlier. Get one for each of your plants. <laughs> yep. Each of your plants, indoor and outdoor plants. Yeah. It's actually so incredibly useful. And I use mine every day. And there's eight more months of the That's year. Right. So plenty of time. And you and can you just can... use it as a journal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I use mine for, mostly. <laughs> um. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Have a great sale. Have fun at the sale. (laughs) Deep, deep watery blue. Oh, my babe, how I love to hold you. And rock you and guide you and float you into the deep watery blue. And know, I know the nights are long and the darkness can be so strong and oh my dearest please don't you fear it just revere it for this is where dreams are born into the deep deep watery blue oh my babe how i love to hold you and rock you and guide you and float you into the deep watery blue